Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theater Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Apoff gray founder and artistic director of Forward Theatre Company, and this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 45 of Theatre Forward. Hi. Here. Hello. So for this episode, we are jumping into our very first mailbag conversation. And I want to start by just sending our thanks to everyone who submitted a question to us. Hopefully you will find our responses um, useful and interesting. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to this episode to send us any questions you may have for a future mailbag mailbag conversation. Um, So as we kick off, Mike, I'm going to let you go first. What are you going to pull out of the sack? Well, I got a couple sort of related questions. Um, One from um, our good uh, forward friend and collaborator and actor, Marcy Kearns, um, who always asks smart questions in any conversation you have with her. And she's interested in what Uh, She she says, how much do you see comedy programmed among theaters and offerings going forward in these plague months and years? Um, And will people see comedy as a respite? What do you see? And what place do you see satire having? And then a related question from Bob Bowles, who's the co-artistic director of Third Avenue Playhouse in Sturgeon Bay, an outstanding Door County theater for those of you who haven't visited. And he's saying, you know, 2020 has shifted the world for all of us. Once the dust settles and we're back doing what we do best, how will or how should our programming decisions reflect this new collective experience? And then Bob goes on to say that the programming we've had doesn't necessarily reflect the reality that we're in. So I think both of these questions are about tone um, and about what is going to be appropriate given everything that has happened in this year. Um, So I guess I'll I'll start. I mean, on comedy, yeah, please, we need it more than ever. Um, I don't think that satire is going to be the way. I think we've been watching a satire show on late night TV for the last four years, and hopefully with the removal of the person who was the uh, target of most of that comedy and satire, there won't be a need for as much of that. It's low-hanging fruit. I'm hoping that we aren't going to just see escapist comedy, because even though that's uh, ostensibly appealing, I don't think it's going to you know, feed the hunger that people have. I'm hoping and thinking we're going to see comedy that has a little bit more of a chewy flavor to it. And that is a little bit darker. And I think that that will both acknowledge the times that we're in. Um, and, and also at the same time, hopefully allow people to, to, you know, have that need to laugh, uh, dealt with in, in, in some way. So bring it on, Sam Beckett. Uh, I think this is going to be a different answer to for all of us, I'm going to guess. Um, absolutely comedy. I would say what I really don't want to, I don't know if, if what you meant by dark or meaty or something, if this refutes that, I'm not sure. But I, I've had it with the mean-spirited. And this could be just where I am right now, this week, this month. I don't want, I want pure comedy. And I'm tired of the mean-spirited comedy and making fun, find the target, make fun of it. Um, uh, Yeah, I'd be, I... I beg of playwrights to come up with something that is truly thoughtful, but funny. Please, would love to see it. Would love to produce it. 
Yeah, I really like the the different ways both of you, um, I think, are kind of coming at the same response, um, but but from using different language, perhaps, or different perspective. And I think uh, mine, because everybody who's been listening to this podcast all along knows we have frequently discussed our desire for more contemporary comedies. And that certainly is only going to be heightened coming out of this moment that we're in. But the, the, the way I think about it is that that all of us collectively, really globally, um, but particularly here in this country, and certainly right now in the state of Wisconsin, I mean, we're we're collectively experiencing trauma at different levels, at different you know degrees of impact for all of us. But all of us collectively are in, I think, what we will look back at as a, as one of the significant traumatic periods of our lives, whether we are older, whether we are parents, whether we are students, what have you, and. As you come out of trauma, you know, as I think about programming, as we're trying to build our 21-22 season, for example, it, it, there's that sense of wanting to wrap our audience in a warm embrace. And that doesn't mean, you know, giving them the theatrical equivalent of warm milk necessarily, but you want everything that we share with them, every story that we tell as we come through this traumatic experience to be in some way healing. Laughter is healing. A, a well-constructed cathartic experience can be healing. Um, a comforting or inspiring story can be healing. Um, but I, but I kind of feel like I want everything we do for the next couple of seasons to, to be restorative in some way, both for the artists working on it and for the audience members seeing it. And so when you take that criteria and you apply it to comedy, then absolutely, it's it's exactly what both of you are talking about. Um, nothing that's overtly mean, to your point, Julie, and to your point, Mike, I think something that's completely frivolous. Yes, laughter is healing in and of itself, but if it feels too divorced from what we've all gone through, um, I think I take your point that it might not feel as capable of building us back up as something that's... Um, got a little substance to it. Uh, so yeah, that's just another another way of framing framing that same question. I definitely don't mean the mean stuff. I'm thinking Chekhov. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, it's it's female playwrights <laughs> that come to mind and playwrights that we've done. I'm looking for something great from Sarah Rule, from Annie Baker, mm. um, from Teresa Rebeck. I mean, I think these are voices that, you know, have something deeper in them anyway, in terms of what they write, but also have a really great comic bent in that sort of deeper, more profound way. So, and that can absolutely, you know, meet the prescription of enveloping our audience in something good and hopeful. Yeah. I want our stories to be the equivalent of a hug, especially when I can't yet hug anybody. <laughs> um, right. Well, speaking of people I want to give a hug to, um, have a wonderful uh, question in our in our mailbag from one of our um, wonderful Forward Theater subscribers, uh, Nancy Chesky. And she wrote... Um, this, she said, this may be too much inside baseball or inside theater, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the current battle between Actors Equity Association and SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Um, and, you know, I will just say, Nancy, I mean, it may be inside baseball, but it's a podcast about the baseball, right? So this is the perfect forum. Um, you know, we, we could so easily talk for hours about the details of what's going on. And I, I don't think there's um, much benefit to covering all of that. Anybody who's interested can can Google 
and find an awful lot of information out there right now. But but just to kind of summarize, um, for those who aren't aware, Actors' Equity Association is the union that covers actors and stage managers in professional theater in the United States. Screen Actors Guild uh, supports um, the television and, and film actors uh, that work in this country. And uh, there is currently a, uh, a turf war um, going on between these two unions now that the creative output of so many live theater companies is being routed to uh, content that you can only get through a screen. And so, um, you know, I guess it, 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 it's maybe not surprising that that has become a, a turf war. Um, it's incredibly unfortunate for everybody concerned. I mean, obviously both of these unions are hurting tremendously because there've been a there's been a dramatic decrease in the work for their membership and therefore as well, the funds coming into that union to pay for things like health insurance and other protections for their membership. Um, this is very, very, very hard on the freelance artists uh, that are trying to get work. And it's, it's really, really difficult for producing companies because, um, if there was ever a time everyone needed to be uh, pulling on our oars, going in the same direction uh, in these choppy waters, uh, it's now. Um, and so to have these, um, these fights happening when we're all struggling for survival is, is, is really difficult. Um, which is not so much, I mean, an answer to, or, or a solution to the problem, but the question was for our thoughts. And, and those are kind of my thoughts. This is, it's really unfortunate. It's really difficult. Um, and it's, and it's hurting a lot, a lot of people. And so all I can hope for as someone who, who works very closely as a producer with Actors Equity Association um, is that uh, the necessary people get in the, you know, virtual room together and, and, and get this figured out so that we can all um, make progress together. Well, they are going into mediation, yeah. which is a great, a great next step. Um, I think that these were issues that were, were bubbling for quite a long time. This idea of, of staged theater in a virtual reality. Um, and it came to a head obviously during this time, but I think it had always been um, a matter of what, what agency is really does have control over over um, what people are seeing, and and so I do. I hope this is a terrible time for um, unions that represent people who perform <laughs> um, to be arguing. So I hope very much that they can work this out to the benefit of us all um, and not prevent. Uh, people from working or companies from hiring their members. Yeah. And I, I would add, I would just add to this that um, one of the things I would most like to see change because it really has not been the case for the last, you know, eight months that we've been uh, coping with COVID is, um, is the unions bringing producers in more as problem solving partners. Um, obviously there's a long history of, uh, clashes in every unionized industry between union leadership and certain employers who are trying to, you know, take advantage of union employees or to pull one over on the union. But that is usually a very, very small percentage, again, in any industry. I'm not talking specifically about ours. Um, and I think, but I do think that it applies very specifically to ours. Absolutely, there are 
pardon the expression, bad actors, because I don't mean that in the theatrical sense, but there are of course going to be bad actors and producers that are trying to get away with something. Um, But the vast majority of us just want to figure out how and when we can safely put people back to work. And so using us to help the unions figure out a path forward would just bring more resources to the table. And I, 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 Certainly for our level of theater company, that's not happening right now. And I would really, really love to see that develop. To view us as a partner with the same end goal, which is to do theater and hire people who will then get health insurance and get pension and um, uh, a livable wage. We're we're working on, we're all on the same road. Right. (laughs) And and doing it safely. And and doing doing it it safely. safely. Yeah. And we're all on the road in a bigger sense that that sort of gets lost when people get in the trenches and have these kinds of fights is if we had, you know, I know I've said this on this podcast before, you're not seeing these kinds of fights in Britain or Europe in the in the way that you are here. And that's because the government in those areas is putting more money into this. The unions are scrapping with each other in part. And I don't mean to oversimplify this because the pot's smaller and the pot's smaller because even though the arts contribute what they do to our society, they're not being rewarded and valued by our governments, including Wisconsin, even though it's done better than in recent days. And so once, you know, one of the ways we can partner, the unions can partner with each other and they should be partnering with us is we need to be much better than we've been. And I think one of the, that's one of the things we're learning in this pandemic about lobbying and, and being effective in our lobbying with state and federal governments to make them understand the value that we contribute um, so that unions aren't being put in the terrible position of being blamed because their health insurance funds are collapsing. They shouldn't even be having to talk about those kinds of issues. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Julie, let's go on to it. It's a mailbag episode. So why don't you pull out a letter and, uh, yeah, we're um, completely switching here. Um, we, uh, I've got a question from, um, Zachary Dean, who's a um, Milwaukee based actor with an incredible singing voice. Um, good friend, um, a good partner here with, uh, forward. And he writes, uh, I feel it's really difficult for younger artists to book work except for a uniquely opportune few. What are things you wish you could tell a young artist, recent grads who come out to audition for you? Um, I can start, and this seems really fundamental, and I'm sorry that I have to say this, but I'm surprised, and I, I wouldn't say this, um, no, it's mostly younger. I'll have to, I, I have to say this. Read the whole play. When you come and audition, if you're auditioning for a role, know the whole, read the whole thing. Not just that scene that you've come to audition for, know the whole play and be able to talk about it and recognize for the most part, um, because we're not doing huge um, cattle calls here in Wisconsin, except for our generals, I say, but mostly it's, you know, a one-on-one lovely time to audition and have more to talk about and and tell us more about yourself and if you're just doing monologues pick something that reflects who you are and as much as you can um let us know about you in the few minutes you have will be the most helpful and secondly i love when people send me thank you emails. It doesn't have to be a written thing, but, but um, 
uh, just a quick thanks or a cover letter that says, here I am. This is, it's, it's a business as well. And so look at it as a business, have your headshot and resume, have your good cover letter, know who you're talking to and send a thank you note. Lovely. It's I, I love that that Julie. It's so funny. I, I took a completely sort of different approach to um, to Zach's question about um, something to tell young artists and recent grads, um, and I was looking more um, holistically about the idea of how to hang in there, right? Um, because because it takes time. I mean, uh, you know, his point is accurate. It, a uniquely opportune few. Uh, are booking work right away as they come out of school, as they enter the profession. Paid and it work. takes, yes, paid, paid work. work is different, I think. Agreed. Than- it, agreed. And it, but it, it takes time. Almost no one starts immediately booking work. It, it really, really, it can, this can be a years long, hopefully not decades long, although for some people it is decades long, but mm-hmm. for most it's a years long process of kind of hitting your groove where you become a, a, a sort of regularly working paid actor. And my biggest piece of advice when I talk to students who are still in undergrad or getting ready to come out of grad school is the importance of finding, and you can't on a podcast see me doing air quotes, but about finding the day job that you find both interesting enough and flexible enough that you can sustain a life in it while you take the time it takes to build your theater career. You know, for some people it's food service work. That's not so great at the moment, just like performing arts for some it's temping for some it's, I mean, there's so many different kinds of, of day jobs that we know artists out there have had, but finding something that you're making enough money that you can sustain your life. You're not living in poverty. You're not living in complete you know, destitution and hardship. And that also has the flexibility that you can get to an audition that you can take six weeks off to do a show. If you get a gig, um, it's hard. It's hard work to sort of find the right fit, but we, I know so many artists who have, and I sometimes think coming out of school, students aren't thinking about that as, as big a problem to solve for themselves as how am I going to get that first acting gig? But I actually think solving the what's my day job part of the equation sets you up much better for long-term success because you can sustain it longer. And therefore you are more likely to still be trying when things click in for you career-wise. That was, um, that was what, and you know, Zach's question, um, just for me, tied with a a second uh, question that Marcy Kearns had sent us, you know, she's a a teacher as well at Carthage College, and and she said, my college theater students graduating soon are, no surprise, in some cases reeling from their choice of study, and they don't know how to plot a way forward for themselves given the upheaval of the world. Are you able to make a case for them to not give up on their pursuit of this art form? And, and in many ways, it's tied to, um, to Zach's question. And the way Marcy put it really got me thinking about the fact that I think right now, all of us, not just those of us in the arts, are learning in real time the importance of creativity and resilience in every single industry. And I would argue theater is excellent training for that, no matter 
what you wind up doing in your life. So to reassure those students right now who are going to be coming out into a, a work world where there probably won't be a lot of paid theater work in the next 12 months, you know, um, that their their skill set is is really desirable and should be transferable. But I also think not in the next 12 months, but but you know, 18, 24, I actually think the appetite for live entertainment when we are fully safely through this crisis is going to be more ravenous than probably at any time in my lifetime. So while this moment in time may be as dark as it's been within our industry, I'm, I'm really optimistic that we're gonna be going into an absolutely wonderful, robust flowering of, of live entertainment. You know, I think about the play we were working on, The Amateurs, and it was all about living through the plague and getting to the Renaissance. And I really hope that that we find ourselves as a field in a renaissance in the coming years. And hopefully lots we're of good work. It. We're seeing it now. I mean, I can't keep up. And I put a lot of hours into this every day with all the stuff that is being put online. A lot of it is extraordinarily high quality. I'm not just talking about archival streams of things that were done a million years ago. I'm talking about new work that is being produced. And I think Jenna goes exactly to what you're saying. People are hungering for stories right now. And I think what I would say to somebody in this position is what this moment is teaching us, notwithstanding government's inability to get it at the, at the current time, is you are more relevant than we even dreamed you were. You are are more important than we even thought you were. Your stories are going to matter more in terms of the world we're trying to build back better than we could have even imagined. And so it may seem horrible right now, but 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 if you want to talk about essential workers, people in theater are essential workers. I would say too to these grads that you can take 10% of your day or your week and think, what the heck did I do? <laughs> and that's okay. Because I've been doing this for a long time. And occasionally I wake up in the morning and think, what? Okay, what else can I do? And then I start getting to work and I realize, no, it will get better. There will be more. I totally agree, Jen, that appetite is there. And we will see, we will see another renaissance of theater when we can all get together. But allow yourself occasionally to put your head on the table and go, oh my God, now <laughs> what? And then get up and let's keep doing it. Beautiful. Um, reaching back into the mailbag, um, we, we got uh, a set of interrelated questions from our friends, Joe and Luann Myers, um, mostly focused on some of these logistics of getting back to live performance, obviously not, you know, this month here in November, December, uh, 2020, but over the course of 2021, um, they were saying, you know, that we'd noticed noted in a past episode, um, questions about how are ushers going to handle patrons, uh, that might be having a minor equipment problem with their masks. Um, how will the six feet or more spacing issue be managed when you consider couples or groups of patrons who want to sit together? How are the performers managed off stage and on stage? Um, if they need to be in a similar number of patrons, uh, would they be put in a bubble? Would they need to, would the performers need to wear some form of mask? Are we going to block the first few audience rows off? to allow for the six feet or more of spacing between performers and audience. So really all those questions about um, really specific logistics of getting back into performance. Julie, you want to take a crack at that? Well, goodness, those are, that's definitely the question, uh, questions. Um, I would recommend anybody to take a look at the Milwaukee Reps safety plan 
which they have on their website, which is so unbelievably thorough. And we did talk um, to Jared Clark in, um, recently on this podcast, but um, so many of those things have been taken into account and come up with an idea. I think it's going to be different for us in terms of um, the overture because so much of these, the safety is, is going to be their responsibility. But I do wonder about um, the, the idea of socially distanced audiences makes complete sense. And surely you can do that. But then when you start getting into the specifics of, well, this person had this seat, they want to be there, but they're not really in a pod. So where do we move the person who's, all, who's next to them? I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of seating charts when we finally do get into the space and need, um, need to work on that um, and see who is willing to come to the theater. Um, ushers, I don't know that we'll have voluntary ushers, volunteer ushers um, for a little bit. It might need to be some paid house management staff that uh, takes care of anybody who's not wearing a mask or any 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 other issues in the um, in the theater, uh, but this is um, certainly something we're going to have to get started on fairly soon to answer questions for ourselves. Yeah, I think this is hopefully this is thinking about the transitional moment. But mm -hmm. if we don't, in relatively short order, uh, and by that I mean you know a year to eighteen months get back to where we were, where we're not having to think about social distancing. And maybe this is my optimism because of the, you know, two vaccines have uh, in the week that we're recording this uh, look like they're going to go forward. Um, we're, we're not going to have an industry. I mean, you know, Broadway's already been very clear. The model will not work with social distancing. It is not financially feasible. And I'm thinking also about, you know, I was walking recently by um, the very inspiring in this moment, new Steppenwolf structure arising just to the south of their main theater on Halstead in Chicago. And Anna Shapiro, their brilliant artistic director, was interviewed by Chris Jones this week. And then, you know, he said, you know, you're betting your whole house on this very intimate theater space where every seat's going to be within six rows of the stage. You know, it seems like a crazy moment to be doing that. And I loved her response. And she said, I don't want to be betting on being in a world where this isn't going to be possible. I don't want to be part of that kind of a theatrical world. And that's kind of what Joseph Hodge said at, at, the, at the Guthrie. You've heard that from Bob Bowles at Third Avenue Playhouse. There are others as well. I mean, we may need to have an interval. We will need to have an interval yeah. where we have social distancing. But if that lasts too long, um, we're not going to be, I don't think, a viable industry in the long term. We need to get, we can't have social distancing forever. I think it's entirely possible to have, you know, both of those things in our heads at the same time, both that we are going to have a period, an interim period, as you call it, where yes. we have to do things in what feels like a very strange way with distances, with audiences and masks, with, you know, all kinds of protocols backstage. Some of those safety protocols may well carry over post-COVID, yeah, sure. but I can believe that all of that is necessary and work to take care of all of those logistics while at the same time keeping the faith that, you know, whether it's a matter of months or a few years, that that we have contained this pandemic, that we have a successful and well-vaccinated public, that we have good therapeutic, you know, treatments for those who do get COVID and that we can go back 
to treating it like we treat the risk factors of many other things. You know, the existence of the seasonal flu does not stop people from coming to the theater, the existence of other diseases. We need to we need to get COVID to the point where it can be treated that way. And it is not at that point. I feel like I need to I living in Wisconsin with the you know craziness going here. I feel like I need to underline with, you know, red ink and not highlighters right. that we are not even remotely close to being there now. And we need all of these precautions and then some. But that doesn't mean that we're going to need them forever. And I, like you, I just, I have to believe we will get back to playing to a full house because that is, you know, one of the great joys in the theater and it will come again. We we can't predict the exact time, but it it will come again. And and to your point, hugging people for real. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to, I want to, I want us to do one more question. Um, as we uh, finish this up, and it's thinking about theater in the grand s- scope of its history and not just what's happening in this particularly complicated and, and dark moment. And that is with a question from another wonderful subscriber, Diane Kostecki, another person I want to hug very badly. Yes, yes. Um, but here's what she wrote She said, if you could time travel, what play or performance from the past would you most want to see? So I'll, I'll go first. Um, I have two. I'll just re- very quickly. Uh, the first is uh, a 1976 production of Macbeth that I wrote a massive research paper on when I was in college. It was uh, starring Ian McKellen and Judy Dench. It was directed by Trevor Nunn. There was an archival video of it at the Harvard Theater Library, which I watched over and over and over again. And I have to say the aesthetic of that production really influenced me as a director. It was riveting and, my goodness to have been in the audience for that. Uh, I, you know, sign me up for that time machine right now. Um, and then the other, uh, and this is for you, Celia Claire, uh, but to have been in the audience for the cradle will rock with the federal theater oh. project in 1937 and to be able <laughs> yes. to march down the street, pushing the piano and singing, you know, the labor songs. Uh, oh, come on. Goosebumps. Those are my two. How about you, Mike Fisher? Um, I got two as well. I, I, I also can't choose. One of them um, is, is based on the account, uh, and, uh, Jen, in a book that you originally recommended to me by Michael Blakemore uh. Uh, regarding his time at the National. Uh, and this is not the typical performance you would choose for Olivier, but I would have liked to see him in Long Day's Journey mm. uh, in, in that production in the early 70s. But the one I really, really am sad I didn't get to see is on March 31st, 1945, opening night on Broadway for a little play called The Glass Menagerie, in which Lorette <sighs> Taylor apparently gave the performance of all time um, in a moment where she was probably half, you know, half drunk. Um, um, giving that performance, but sort of came back from a very, very difficult period uh, in her life, uh, came roaring back. She would be dead a year later, but for that one shining moment, she helped put onto the uh, uh, playing field the person who, as I think I've said in this podcast before, I consider the greatest American playwright with perhaps his best play. Gorgeous. Uh, Julie? Yeah, I'm going to go completely lowbrow. And um, as much as I love, I love, love, love being in a theater, looking, you know, dressing, dressing well, getting my ticket, hearing the ding, ding, ding. I have always my whole life wanted to be at the Globe Theater 
watching a Shakespeare show, eating a chicken leg, and throwing things at the um, at the actors. Like the idea of that of of people screaming out and talking. I mean, the um, I don't want to see every show like that, but I would like to see one a show where where we encourage eating and yelling and throwing things. That I think is right where I'm at right now. That I think I would really enjoy. Julie, would you let people tweet? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yes, of course. That's that would be that would actually be a smaller version. I was with you till then. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I loved that little trip into the past from all of us. And uh, I think we can leave it there. And and seriously, if you want to write to us, tell us what your time travel uh, production wish list would be. Um, but for now, we'll say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Our thanks uh, to all of you for listening. And I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by the inimitable Scott Hayden. And you can follow us or share your thoughts or write us email question, uh, questions uh, that we would try and answer in a future mailbag episode at Theater Forward, as always, with an ER. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And be sure to leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.